Welcome to Bible and Bourbon with Pastor Ben. Today we are discussing Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13, the faith of the centurion. Today we have a joy from someone in my life. There's someone I know whose child had to be in the NICU for the first several months of its life. They thought that they'd have to transfer this child to an additional hospital to get more care, but quite miraculously, earlier this week, the child just got better and was able to come home for the very first time. They are a wonderful family, and I know we can all take a moment of prayer to be joyful with them. Today, I am drinking bourbon and ginger ale with Benchmark 8. If you are outside of Kentucky, you might be a bit surprised that I'm using Benchmark 8. But if you are from Kentucky, you're probably a bit excited that I was able to get my hands on a bottle. In fact, when I went to the liquor store, this was the last bottle they had left, so I made sure to snatch it up before it was gone. Benchmark 8 might be a lower-quality bourbon based on cost, but it is not low-quality based on taste. I learned about this, in fact, with a conversation I had with the Kentucky Bourbon Guy, a local bourbon expert who particularly enjoys doing blind taste tests between different types of bourbon. And he has found that most people prefer Benchmark 8 when it's put up against other basic bourbons, your Maker's Marks or even Woodford Reserves. And Benchmark 8 is especially good for mixing. It is considered a light bourbon, meaning it doesn't have any overwhelming notes to it, which is wonderful if you are mixing a drink or even a simple cocktail. So, if you are outside of Louisville, Kentucky, or Kentucky in general, and Benchmark 8 is still widely available at your liquor stores, I would suggest you pick up a bottle. It won't cost you hardly anything, and it is a fantastic bourbon to enjoy, especially if you enjoy mixing your bourbon with anything. Now, let's start our study off with a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this moment to examine our faith to see how we can place our faith in you above everything else, just as the centurion did so long ago. Let this not be the best part of our day, but merely a building block to something greater to come. Amen. Matthew, chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, 
let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Matthew, chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. Matthew, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, wanted to make sure that the reader knew that Jesus, the Messiah, was mighty in word, that his teaching had authority to it, an authority that was unmatched by anyone else. His authority came from God, not from his education or from his mentors. He taught like someone who had been invested by God himself with power. Now that Matthew has proven that he has that authority, he is now stating that Jesus was mighty indeed as well, highlighting several healing narratives like this one in chapter 8. These healings serve to demonstrate the power of God's kingdom and particularly the power of faith. Because throughout Matthew, the power of faith is highlighted. And in this healing today, we saw that it was his faith that healed his servant. We start this passage hearing about the centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman military officer. He was in charge of a group of soldiers. Before the year 100 BC, a centurion was always in charge of 100 soldiers. It's where the name comes from. But after a series of reforms that took place in the Roman military by this time, A centurion was no longer in charge of strictly 100 men. In most cases, they were in charge of 80. Now, I know it doesn't make much sense to have a centurion, whose name means 100, in charge of 80 men, but that's how it worked. In fact, there were some centurions under Julius Caesar, which were in charge of 500 men, and others as few as 50. But regardless of the number of men under their control, they were important figures in the Roman military. They roughly translate it to a captain or a lieutenant in our modern army. They got this position either by being elected or appointed by the Senate or the Emperor. They were well-liked inside of Rome, but they weren't particularly well-respected outside of Rome especially by commoners on the fringes of the Roman Empire, in places like Judah. Rome was seen as an occupying power, and these centurions were the officers or Roman officials that were most likely to come in contact with common people out on the countryside. They would often go into towns and collect taxes, and generally weren't well-liked. No tax collector is. But this centurion seems a bit different than the others. He has adopted, at least in some sense, some of the cultures of the Hebrew people. The Gospel of Luke presents the same story, but has a different opening to it. Here, in Matthew, the centurion goes to Jesus himself. But in the Gospel of Luke, the centurion was represented by a group of Jewish elders and friends that went on his behalf. At least in Luke, it shows that this centurion had friends that were Jewish, which is very different than most Romans at the time, which makes sense based on what happens next. 
After Jesus follows the centurion for a while, he says to Jesus that he should not enter his house, particularly saying the words that he does not deserve to have Jesus under his roof. He's indicating that Jesus is a holy and powerful man, and he wishes to humble himself to him. And these words were no accident. In Greek, they are the exact same words that John the Baptist says to Jesus when he comes to be baptized. Now, often in English, John's words are translated, I am not fit to, but in Greek, they are the same. Both John the Baptist and this centurion recognize the holiness of Jesus and see themselves as completely unfit to have him in their house or to be the one that baptizes him. Next, we have a bit of an odd comparison. This centurion says that he has authority over his soldiers, saying that they go or come or do what he wants, that he is a man in charge of men. And in the same way, Jesus is in charge of everything. He does not need to come to his house. He can merely say that this servant will be healed, and he will. And this shows a universality. If Matthew is written particularly to a Jewish audience, but Christianity is spreading faster among the Gentiles than the Jews, then Matthew needs to show that Jesus isn't just the master of Israel, but the master of all. And this centurion, saying that his authority is backed by Rome, but Jesus' authority is backed by all, makes that argument. Nothing is outside of Jesus' control, even Rome. After this, Jesus commends this outsider for his extraordinary faith and indicates that such outsiders will join the patriarchs in the feast of the kingdom of heaven, while some Jews who might consider themselves faithful will find them outside of the city walls. It's also interesting that Jesus says that he has not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, because Jesus has spent a considerable amount of time preaching and talking to people from Israel. We just heard the Sermon on the Mound, where he preached to a whole lot of people from all around. And yet it seems that no one has had as much faith as this centurion, who he's had only a limited interaction with. He's also called disciples at this point, but yet he says that he has found no one with such faith. Now, he could be just talking in hyperbole, emphasizing the faith of this centurion, and saying that there was absolutely no one who had this kind of faith in Israel, when really he just means that the vast majority of people in Israel have not been as faithful as this man, which is perfectly fine. Jesus can speak in hyperbole, and often he uses figurative language, but it also in some ways highlights the lack of acceptance that these large crowds had for his teaching. They may have heard it and agreed with it, but they weren't putting it into practice. They weren't living it. And the same is true for us today. Our belief needs to be more than just learning. We have to have our belief in our heart to have our faith in Jesus. 
We can't just say we are with the right group or with the right church. We need to be people who live the faith. And that's something we all need to strive for in our lives. But before he ends this interaction, after he describes the positives of this feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, he also describes the negative, being thrown outside of the walls. Hell, in our modern culture, is very specific. It's a place with the devil and a fiery inferno beneath us. But as we've mentioned in this podcast in the past, that's not how hell is described to us in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus describes hell for the most part, it's described much like it is today. A place of darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. There is sometimes a description of an inferno, but the inferno is always seen as a devouring fire. It's not necessarily a torture as much as it is a way to destroy whatever is thrown inside so that the only thing is left is teeth gnashing together. And in this darkness, there is weeping as people get thrown into a place of nothingness because there is nothing outside of God. And if hell is, as it's described, a place outside of the kingdom, then it's a place of nothingness, a void, where all that's thrown in is devoured. Now, we will get some more full descriptions later in Matthew of hell, and we'll talk more about it then, but this basic principle is something that continues. Hell is outside of God, and God is everything. And after this description, Jesus turns and says that because the centurion has believed, his faith has healed his servant. And this is often the case in the Gospel of Matthew. Healings take place not because of the power of Jesus, but the power of faith. Faith, like that of the centurion, can overcome darkness. Faith is a unity with God and a unity with the divine, a place at the table with the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Faith is what we're called to have. And it's what we can take from the centurion. He was not a Hebrew. He was not someone who was expected to be a good, God-fearing man. He was someone that you would expect to punish God's chosen people, but instead, he chose to be one, to follow Jesus and to repeat the words of John the Baptist the same words that Jesus heard when he began his ministry, saying that he was not worthy, but yet, through his faith, he came to be accepted as one of God's own. The same thing we can do today through our faith. As always, thank you for joining me today. If you have any questions over the material, please reach out to me at BiblePeriodBerman at gmail.com. And while it's true that Jesus drank wine, an occasional glass is different than an addiction. If you need help, please seek it. If you need help and don't know where to look, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to guide you. Blessings, everyone.